So if you grab your Bible, if you have it with you, or uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can get it on your device. There are Bible apps like ESV Bible app or the YouVersion Bible app. And I would encourage you to get to Luke 17. We're continuing in our way through this gospel, which is uh, the gospel according to Luke, meaning it's Luke's presentation of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and, and resurrection. And last week, we had looked at Jesus' commands and guidelines for the church in dealing with conflict, dealing with, with sin. And today, as we turn to Luke 17, verse 11 to 19, uh, we're going to look also at two ways of approaching God in, in prayer. Uh, so I'll begin reading in verse 11 of Luke 17, and you can follow along. It's also printed in your, in your bulletin. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the scriptures. We thank you that it is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. Lord, we pray that, that you would illuminate your word through your spirit, that we could see it and understand it and apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, prayer is, of course, one of those topics that comes up a lot in the Bible, and we can never really talk about it too much because prayer is the, the bedrock of the Christian experience. Uh, so much of the, the Christian experience is, is lived through prayer. And as you heard me read this passage a moment ago, you might say, well, what does this passage have to, to do with prayer? Uh, but what we see are people approaching Jesus, and we see two different ways of approaching Jesus. And and for them, it was coming up to the incarnate Jesus during his earthly ministry. But I think that what we see here is a pattern of how we also then approach Jesus in prayer ourselves. And so let's look at the, the first way to approach Jesus in prayer. And that's in verse 12. It says that as Jesus entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
Now, with the, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we've definitely heard stories about people who are they're living happy, healthy lives with their families, uh, but then suddenly they get a fever, they get a cough, they get a, a positive test for COVID-19, and then they're swept away to isolation. Their condition worsens and worsens and, until they're on a, a ventilator, and, and there they are in isolation, wondering if they're ever going to see their families again. Uh, their families are wondering if they're ever going to see their loved one again. And that's been one of the, the terrifying realities of coronavirus that we've heard so often. But as we think about that image today, that there is a, an analogy of that to the experience of people in the first century with leprosy. Uh, because you could have a happy relationship with your family, your job is going well, things are great. You get a small rash, you don't think about it, the rash continues to grow and grow and spread, and it's declared a form of leprosy, which was a broader term for many different skin diseases. And then according to Old Testament law, you were forced into a certain type of quarantine away from your family. And listen to the way that that quarantine was described in Leviticus chapter 13, starting in verse 45. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the tent. So again, there you see many elements of, of what we're seeing in the, in the pandemic, where he's saying that they have to, to dwell alone. They're dwelling away from others. Uh, even uh, a certain type of, of face covering. I mean, it says to cover his lips, and some of the translations say cover their mouth while they cry, uh, unclean, unclean. And so this would have been the, the experience of these ten men, these ten lepers in our text. Uh, they're dwelling alone, away from their families. Um, it must have been a, a sad, difficult place, and probably with very little hope of actually ever uh, being cured or being healed of it, uh, and that they might spend years or even decades slowly dying, losing the use of their hands and their feet and their, their body, um, just a, a terrible way to live and a terrible, quite lonely way to die. And that's why when these ten men saw Jesus, it says that at a distance they were crying out, Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And that's really the, the first way of praying, of, of approaching Christ that we see here, that it's this call to, to God for mercy in where we find ourselves. And that could be saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us when we're facing physical health problems. Because that's what these ten lepers were facing in our text. They were facing a severe disease in their bodies. And I'm sure that many of you know what it's like to have pain or disease or cancer um, or a host of things that can afflict us in this life. And, and so we call out to God. We say, Lord, have mercy on us. And it's right to call out to God when we're facing those things. That's why uh, Peter in 1 Peter 5 says, for us to cast our anxieties on him 
because he cares for us. And you see lots and lots of examples, especially in the Gospels, of people facing some sort of physical illness or having a loved one facing physical illness, and they say, Lord, have mercy. Uh, For example, Matthew 9, verse 27, it says, And as Jesus passed by from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Or Matthew 15, 22, it says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Or Matthew 17, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. Or Matthew 20, verse 30, And behold, there were two men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And so again, this this refrain over and over again from those who are facing physical hardship to say, Lord, have mercy on me, and that, that Jesus promises to hear our prayers when we call to him. But of course, we have to be also careful here as well as we think of crying for mercy from a place of physical suffering. And you may have noticed if you participated in Bible studies that often the majority of the prayer requests have to do with physical health. Um, and that, 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 that's not a bad thing because uh, it's right to cry out for mercy when we're facing surgery or sickness or a loved one uh, is facing sickness. Um, that's a good thing to do. But it's interesting that if you look at the prayers of the Bible, so for instance, the Psalms, which is really the, the prayer book of Scripture, there's actually very little about prayer for physical sickness, uh, that, that's, that the prayer often focuses on, on other things. There's, there, there's thanksgiving, there's confession, there's, there's lament, and you could go on and on with the different kinds of prayer that we see. But one of the important cries for mercy uh, is this cry for mercy when we see not just the, the sickness of our bodies, but really you could say the sickness of our, of our souls, uh, the sickness of our spiritual life before God as, as we are in rebellion against him because of sin. And you remember last week when we were talking about rebuke, repent, forgive, uh, that I, I mentioned King David, who uh, was a murderer, who committed adultery, and how when he confessed to the Lord, when he saw the gravity of his sin, he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And so you see what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm physically sick, and I'm crying out for mercy like the people in our text, but he's saying that that really I'm, I'm spiritually sick, that, I, that I, I see the breach that my sin has made in my relationship with you, oh God, and that I'm desperately in need of a certain type of healing. And that's why in Psalm 51, verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. And again, he's not saying wash me and I'll be free from physical leprosy, but the spiritual leprosy. Uh, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. 
Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Again, it's, it's Lord, have mercy on me, not for physical leprosy, but for spiritual uncleanness before you. And if you think about it, though, this cry for mercy, Lord, have mercy on me, whether it's for physical sickness or spiritual sickness, that, that often this is the, the first cry of faith. When somebody is first putting their trust in the Lord, this is often the way that it sounds. You know, we're, we're preparing in the, the next couple weeks for the birth of our uh, second daughter, and you know, if you've seen a child be born or even on TV shows, the baby comes out of the womb, takes the first breath, and then what's the first thing that you hear? It's this loud cry. And, I, and that's often the way that it is as well when we're, when we're born again by the Spirit to a living hope, that the, the Spirit breathes into our, our spiritually dead heart, and that the, the first sound that comes out is a cry for mercy, and it could be a cry of, of an awareness of suffering in, in our lives physically. It could be an awareness of, of sin, but again, it's, it's this sense within ourselves that we can't do it on our own, that, that we're, we're dependent, that we need God, that, that, that unless he saves us, unless he reaches into our lives, uh, that we're without hope and God in the world. And a few examples of the, this, these are... Um, not real examples, but I, I think that these will capture the, how this can, can look for somebody. You could imagine a, a young woman who's raised in the church, and she walks away from God. She's really just living life her own way. Before she knows it, she's uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol. She's alienating herself from everyone in her life. Uh, and there's a moment where then she finally hits rock bottom, and before it's a an overdose, she's, she's able to, to cry out to God for mercy. It's that, again, that, that infant taking a spiritual breath and crying out and saying, God, I need you. And in that moment, it may not be that she's immediately healed of everything in her life, uh, but that, that cry for mercy could be the first step then of going to rehab and seeking help and getting the care that, that she needs that then could actually uh, begin the path of trusting in Christ and seeing that, that faith that that infant faith that then grows up and is brought to bear in many ways in her life. Or here's a, another example where you could have a, a young man who is, is successful, he's doing well in his work, he's smart, and he feels like he has absolutely zero need for God, so he's never really thought about spiritual questions. It's more just about the day-to-day, -day, living for, for money and, and for work. But then he's distracted by cell phone for a minute driving. A car pulls out in front of him. He doesn't see it. He's in a terrible accident. Uh, he barely gets out of the car alive. They rush him to the hospital. He spends a while in a coma, wakes up. Most likely he'll be paralyzed for the rest of his life. And at that point, there are these two options. One is shaking your fist at God and saying, God, how could you ever allow this to happen to me? Or there's the cry, that, that infant cry of faith, just taking that first spiritual breath and saying, Lord, have mercy on me that I'm completely helpless, completely hopeless. And, and quite often that could be a place that 
turning place in somebody's life. And again, not necessarily that they're going to be physically healed in this life, but there could be a sense of now even with a physical disability, I now have hope and a promise of resurrection life. I have a, a deeper bedrock of joy in my life that I didn't know before when I thought that I had everything together. Or here's a, another example. You could imagine a suburban mom who is healthy on the outside, is, is happy, her children are doing well, they're successful, uh, she's well-liked in the community, um, and, and everybody would say, okay, this is a person who has everything together. And even though she's not physically sick in any way, that she sees within her heart this pattern that as much as she tries to be perfect, she can't be perfect. As much as she tries to perfectly follow all of the rules, she can't follow all the rules. As much as she wants to perfectly love her family and her children, she's unable to do it. Uh, that, that she sees this inability in herself, and then she reflects on God and realizes that, that she's failing to love God, failing to love those around us. And then there's that moment of, of choice, of decision, of saying, okay, are you going to go into the place of depression, self-loathing? Or is it saying, gasping for that spiritual breath and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, and joining what David says, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That that's, again, the first cry of faith so often, or, or a cry that we return to even after we walked with the Lord for a long time, like David himself. And I'm confident that, according to Scripture, that when we cry out to God, when we say, Lord, have mercy, that he hears us. But, of course, we can't just stop there. Because what we see here in our text is moving from that first cry of faith to another kind of prayer that we also express many, many times throughout our life. Because you'll notice that as Jesus sends away these ten men, he tells them to go and present themselves to the priest. And of course, when somebody was healed, that's when they would go to the priest and the priest would declare them clean. But they're going actually before they're healed. And he says, you're not, essentially, you're not healed yet, but start heading towards the temple, towards the priest, as if you were healed. And so they head that way, they're healed along the way. And sometimes the, the Sunday school lesson that we'll hear here is, well, look at these bad nine men who didn't say thank you, and so you need to say please and thank you, and, 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 and that's kind of the, the moral and the takeaway from it. And that's probably a part of the lesson, and we'll, we'll get there. But I think that, that we also have to put ourselves in the place of these ten men as they're healed of this terrible, debilitating disease. They're going to present themselves to the priest. Suddenly, their skin is clean. They're miraculously healed. And I know for me that if I hadn't seen my wife and family, if I hadn't experienced physical touch for who knows how long, uh, my first thought would not be, oh, let me go back to the guy who I was just talking to. It would be, no, I'm going to rush to my family. I'm going to rush to the people I care about uh, because it would be such an exciting moment. 
But according to the text, though, it says that one of the men returned to Jesus. Look at verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And so then you see that that just as one type of prayer, one approach to God is the the Lord have mercy, then another type type of approach of of prayer to God is, is falling down before him in reverence and awe and saying, Lord, thank you for all of the mercies that you have poured out in my life. And notice that this Samaritan, and of course the Samaritans were ethnic outcasts from Uh, the Jewish people, that he falls down, expresses gratitude, and therefore does actually give us a powerful example of what it looks like to praise God after we have experienced his mercies poured out in our lives. Because how often is it that God actually does answer our prayers? He answers so many of our prayers. We say, Lord, have mercy on me as I fly. We land, we go on our way. Uh, We say, Lord, have mercy on me that I could get a job. We get a job, we move on with our lives. We say, Lord, have mercy on me and keep me safe from coronavirus. We go to the grocery store, we come back, 14 days go by, we haven't gotten sick. We say, Lord, have mercy on me in this conversation that I can have words to say. Then the conversation goes well. And then how often... When we specifically prayed for something, do we then actually turn and specifically give thanks? And this is something that I've been really personally convicted by in my own prayer life, that when I hear prayer requests, I have a little notebook and I try to write them down if I'm able to. And that so often in my life, my pattern has been that I'll, I'll write down the prayer requests, I'll pray for it for a while, and then either I just, I'll eventually move on or I get a new notebook and I never ever go back to the things that I had actually prayed for. So what I've been trying to do recently actually is in the notebook, I've been putting three columns. So one small column, I'll put the date, and then I'll write the request, and then I'll put another blank column, which is, God, what did you do with this (laughs) prayer request? Uh, And if you were to actually look through the notebook, you would actually be surprised. I'm amazed at the number of things that I specifically pray for Where God, it's not just, well, he answered it in a different way other than I expected, which he sometimes does. But no, I very specifically prayed for this thing. And God very specifically answered the prayer request. And and it's really neat to be able to see specifically of, oh, I started praying for this on, on this day. And look, God has been so faithful in working through prayer. Because people are are right that. Part of prayer is changing ourselves. You'll you'll hear that often, and that's not a wrong thing to say. But at the same time, God actually does promise to use prayer. That prayer is a real instrument in God's hands to accomplish real ends, real purposes. But so often we actually operate as if prayer doesn't really do anything. That that when we pray for something specific, that we can just completely forget about it and move on with our lives as if the the prayer, God wasn't going to answer the prayer, or the fact that he does doesn't matter, that we were just saying it out of a sense of our own anxiety rather than an expectation of, of God's faithfulness in our lives. 
But of course, what we see here then is that there's actually this strong connection between the expression of thankfulness, of gratitude, and actually faith itself. Because if we're really praying from a position of faith and trusting that God is working in our prayers, even if we don't see the outcome of it in this life, uh, that part of that is, is expecting it and then tracking it and seeing God's faithfulness. Because look at what Jesus says in connecting this man's gratitude to faith. In verse 17, he says, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And at first that sounds harsh. Just, is this foreigner is the only one who comes back to give praise? But then look what he says in verse 19. Rise. So the man's laying before Jesus. He says, rise. Your faith has made you well. And so you could say, well, did the other ten have faith? Well, we don't really know. Uh, the other nine, rather. Did, did they have faith in God? Well, there was a certain type of faith to cry out to him for mercy in the first place. There was a certain type of faith to begin going to the priest even before they were healed. But you do wonder then if the other nine actually had a true living faith because they were doing what we so often do with God, where yes, we'll, we'll cry to him for mercy in certain situations where we're facing hardship. It's kind of the, I, I lost my keys and then I pray because I'm so frustrated kind of moment. But then we completely forget about God otherwise. And, or, or kind of the, the vending machine approach to God where when I need something in my life, I'll put a little coin in, hit, hit and hope that God will give me what I want. But there's not this, this sense of real relationship with God. But ultimately, that's what, our, what Scripture is about. It's about not us just having kind of an intellectual knowledge of God, but it's about entering into a relationship with God through Christ, where we're crying, crying out for mercy, we're expecting Him to answer, but then when he does answer, it's not just kind of, all right, thanks, I'll check in next year when I go to church on Easter. But instead, it's saying, no, that what I, what I want is to actually know you more. I want to come and lay before the, the feet of Christ and to praise and to give thanks because of what he has done. And, and no, Lord, you're not just the, the 911 number that I call occasionally uh, when I have a need, but that I feel like it's not worth it to call if I don't have a problem. But we call out to him daily as, as a lifeline for everything that we have and everything that we are. And so again, gratitude then becomes this mark of true faith. And that's why in Scripture, a lack of thankfulness, a, a lack of gratitude is actually a mark of unbelief itself. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 19. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, to those who don't know God, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So you can see there that he's saying that, that those who don't, confess faith in Christ, that there's a certain type of natural knowledge of God, that the creation itself is declaring God, and that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But then in verse 21, he continues, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God 
or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so again, for Paul, to know God and to not give thanks is actually this mark of being under the wrath of God, of, of being outside of relationship with God. And of course, this is why the expression of thankfulness and gratitude is so important and why it's commanded so often in Scripture. Like Ephesians 5, verse 4, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Or Ephesians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Or Colossians 4, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. Or what we saw last week in the book of Daniel on Wednesday night, that Daniel, when he was commanded not to pray, it says that he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. And so the question then is, what is your pattern of thankfulness? And we're so good at it with children, where when a child gets something, a present, and doesn't say thank you, we say, child, you need to say thank you. And that's a habit that we hope to learn. But then what is our habit of of thankfulness to God? And yeah, it's partly giving thanks before meals, as we see the pattern of of Jesus in Scripture, but it's it's much more than that. Because even when we're suffering, even when we're facing um, horrible pain physically or relationally in our lives, that if we really thought about all the mercy that God has given in our lives, all that he has poured out, and, and how much there is to thank God for. And, and I'm always humbled by that if I you know, get a cut on my finger. Suddenly that becomes this huge thing. I cry for mercy from the excruciating pain of a paper cut. Um, but, but then... I, but I've, I've failed to realize that my body had been working perfectly for the whole day. And did I ever give thanks? No, but yet God had been faithful and that we, we are never without a reason to praise and to, to give thanks to the Lord for his mercy. And so as we wrap up then, just kind of pulling these two streams together. So I was saying that there, there's that first kind of prayer, that gasp of faith of saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And then there's the prayer in response to that, this Lord, thank you for your mercies in my life. But in a way, those two types of prayers, you can bring them together, and that's really a microcosm for the entire Christian life. Uh, I mentioned at the very beginning the, the Heidelberg Catechism that we're, we've been going through in our bulletin. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful statement of Christian belief. But if you were to look at the structure of the whole thing, that they talk about there's, there's guilt, grace, and gratitude. Those are the three sections in that catechism. And the first is guilt of saying that, that we've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we recognize that in ourselves, our inability to perfectly follow all of God's rules, to perfectly uh, love him. And then as we become aware of our guilt, we see the grace of God that he pours out for us, that Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death and offers us salvation and forgiveness of sins to wash us clean as a gift through the, through the blood of Christ. And then from there, that's where we can start to cry out for mercy because, because we see who we are that we need him. We see that he's willing and able to save us and that we can receive salvation as a gift. And we say that first cry of faith, Lord, 
have mercy on me. And then you move from there to gratitude, where it's not just praying, Lord, thank you for saving me and forgiving my sins, but then all of life is lived out as a form of gratitude, where we have someone we need to forgive. We say, God's mercy to me was to forgive my sins, so I can extend mercy to this other person and forgive them. And so my response of gratitude is to extend forgiveness to someone else. Or my response of of gratitude is not to try to save myself through keeping uh, the law of God, but to look at what is the character of God? How does the law reflect who he is? And how, as a sense of gratitude and worship, can I desire to conform my life and every part of who I am to Jesus and to his commands um, so that I can die more and more to my sin and live more and more to righteousness? And so again, may that be our, our, all of our prayer of, Lord, have mercy, and then in response, let me live and give thanks and pray in constant gratitude for his unfailing mercy. Let's pray.